Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. Hope you enjoy. Hey, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was March 8th, 1917. It was International Women's Day, a socialist observance that was recognized in Russia. Russia was embroiled in World War I, and its armies were losing a lot of campaigns and people. The economy was also suffering because of the war effort. Workers' wages were low, working and living conditions were subpar, peasants were often treated poorly, and food was low. So on this day in Petrograd, the Russian city now known as St. Petersburg, women joined striking factory workers to protest against food shortages and high bread prices, the war, and Tsar Nicholas II. This was the conflict that led thousands of peasants, workers, and soldiers to strike in the city streets, demanding an end to the war and the autocracy. But unrest had already been simmering. Previous protests that workers led had been met with violence by the Tsar's troops. Government corruption was widespread. Nicholas frequently dissolved the Duma, the legislative body that the Tsar promised would be a representative assembly. In 1915, Nicholas took command of the army himself, leaving his wife Alexandra in charge. Nicholas was an ineffective commander of the Russian army front, and Tsarina Alexandra was an unpopular leader and earned the distrust of many. And on top of all of this, industry was faltering and commodities were scarce. So people had steadily been growing distrustful and tired of the regime. And by March 1917, all that turmoil had come to a head. Workers from the Putilov factory began striking in early March, demanding higher pay to compensate for higher prices for food and goods. During the strikes, the Tsar left Petrograd to visit troops on the front line on March 7th. But back in Petrograd, the strikes were escalating. On March 8th, women who were protesting food rationing joined the demonstrations in droves. Feed the children of the defenders of the motherland, one banner read. And by midday, tens of thousands of people had joined the crowd on Nevsky Prospect, the main street in Petrograd. And by the afternoon, around 100,000 workers were out on strike. Protests that seemed at first to mainly concern economic issues, like food shortages, turned to political demands, like calls for the end of the war and the fall of Tsar Nicholas II. By the next day, people were looting stores and turning over trams and carriages. But Cossacks, or military warriors, that were supposed to disperse the growing crowds refused to do so, making revolutionary speeches from an equestrian statue of Alexander III, calling for the overthrow of the Russian monarchy. Tsarina Alexandra wrote the following to Nicholas. The strikers and rioters in the city are now in a more defiant mood than ever. The disturbances are created by hoodlums. Youngsters and girls are running around shouting they have no bread. They do this just to create some excitement. If the weather were cold, they would all probably be staying at home. 
but the thing will pass and quiet down. Nicholas tried to quell the demonstrations by sending in troops, but the protests showed no signs of slowing down. In fact, the protests became bloody, with demonstrators, police, and troops all clashing with one another. Regiments even began shooting and killing protesters. At Znamenskaya Square on March 11th, dozens of people were killed and wounded. But even after the losses, demonstrations continued. Soldiers began rebelling, joining the masses who were protesting. Prisoners were set free, police stations were looted, and circuit court buildings were burned. As much of the army sided with the revolution and attempts to suppress the demonstrations failed, the city descended into chaos. General Kabalov and his troops surrendered. On March 12th, leaders from the Duma's socialist factions, as well as representatives of workers and soldiers, formed the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies. On March 15th, Nicholas abdicated the throne. And when his brother, Grand Duke Michael, refused the throne, more than three centuries of Russian Romanov rule came to an end. Now that the monarchy was out of power, the Duma formed a provisional government to restore law and order, with the goal of seeing the war to its end. The Petrograd Soviet and provisional government agreed to rule Russia together, but the provisional government's support of the war proved troublesome. People began to favor the idea of a Soviet government ruled by soldiers, workers, and peasants, as opposed to the provisional government, which was led by the bourgeoisie and represented the interests of the wealthy. Russian revolutionary leader and theorist Vladimir Lenin and the Bolshevik party soon gained power. And in November, the provisional government was overthrown in the second of the two Russian revolutions of 1917. Over the next five years, a terribly brutal and bloody civil war would ensue. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Here's a note about the dates of the revolution. So in 1917, Russia used the Julian calendar, whose dates were 13 days behind the Gregorian calendars, which a lot of other places around the world used. And on the Julian calendar, or what they called old-style dates, the February Revolution began on February 23rd. But in new-style dates, it began on March 8th. That's why this is called the February Revolution, not the March one. And the same goes for the October Revolution, which actually took place in November, according to the Gregorian calendar. Another thing I'd like to add is that historians have long debated whether the February Revolution was spontaneous and leaderless or organized. So if you have any insight on that matter, feel free to let us know on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Podcast. And if you'd like to learn more about the Romanovs, you can listen to the episode of Stuff You Miss in History Class called What Happened to the Romanovs. Thanks for joining us today, and I'll see you again tomorrow. Welcome back. I'm your host, Eves, and you're tuned into This Day in History Class, a show that takes history and squeezes it into bite-sized stories. 
The day was March 8, 1957. The Suez Canal was reopened after being closed for several months due to Britain, France, and Israel occupying Egypt during the Suez Crisis. The Suez Canal is an artificial waterway that runs north to south in Egypt, connecting the Mediterranean and Red Seas. Construction began on the canal in 1859. The project was completed by French engineers in 1869. It provided Britain with a shorter sea route to its empire and a shipping route for oil from the Middle East to Europe. The canal was owned and operated by the Suez Canal Company, a joint British and French enterprise. After World War I began, Britain declared Egypt a protectorate, and British and Indian forces were sent to protect the strategically important Suez Canal. The United Kingdom and Egypt signed the Anglo-Egyptian Treaty of 1936 in London. The treaty required Britain to withdraw its troops from Egypt, except for those protecting Britain's interest in the canal. Those troops could remain in the area for 20 years, at which point the need for the presence of British troops would be reassessed. But in the early 1950s, political tensions between Egypt, Britain, and France were escalating. Anti-British sentiment was growing in Egypt. But in 1954, Britain and Egypt reached an agreement that British troops would be withdrawn from Egypt by June of 1956. Egypt would honor freedom of navigation through the Suez Canal, and British troops would be allowed to return if the canal was threatened by an outside power. In 1954, Gamal Abdel Nasser became the second president of Egypt. He aimed to improve Egypt's economy by constructing a high dam at Aswan to irrigate the Nile Valley. His other goals included ending British occupation in Egypt and building up Egyptian forces for an attack on Israel. Britain and the U.S. had agreed to finance the construction of the Aswan High Dam, but the two countries withdrew their offer due to Egypt's ties with communist Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union. The U.S. also wanted to reduce spending on foreign aid. So in 1956, President Nasser declared martial law in the Canal Zone and nationalized the Suez Canal Company. He said that tolls collected from ships passing through the canal would finance the construction of the dam. Even though Nasser agreed to compensate the shareholders, the nationalization violated terms of the 1954 agreement, and France, Israel, and Britain opposed it. The three countries formed a joint plan to invade Egypt and overthrow Nasser. Israeli troops invaded Egypt in late October, and days later, British and French troops began occupying the canal and other Suez territory. But the U.S. pressured France and Britain to accept a United Nations ceasefire. The U.S. also voted for U.N. resolutions denouncing the invasion and approved the creation of a U.N. peacekeeping force. By the end of 1956, Britain and France withdrew. Israeli forces withdrew in March of 1957. Egypt then took control of the canal and reopened it to commercial shipping on March 8, 1957. Britain's influence in the Middle East and its relations with the U.S. were strained as a result of the Suez Crisis. The Egyptian government continues to have complete control over the canal through the Suez Canal Authority. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can find us on social media at TDIHC Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you would like to write me a letter, you can scan it, turn it into a PDF, 
and send it to us via email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.